Praise the Lord. We thank you, Father, this morning for your goodness to us. Lord, we know that song is true because we've seen it so many times in our lives that you have made a way for us. Lord Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life, and no one comes to the Father but through you. And we praise you this morning for your sacrifice, for what you did on our behalf to save us. And Lord, we know every day we see evidence of it all the time, that you provide all that we need. You take care of us, you watch over us, you comfort us and protect us, you help us every single moment of every single day. You are never insufficient. And Lord, we praise you for that this morning. May our hearts, Father, right now be full of gratitude for what you have done. May we think of all the times that you have brought us through and you have provided. Lord Jesus, you're so good to us. And we thank you and praise you this morning for who you are and what you have done. Lord, as we come to your word now, Open up our hearts, even where there's resistance, Lord. Open up our hearts this morning. Draw us close to your Holy Spirit. And Father, may he speak your word to us now. And may we be receptive and be challenged and be so encouraged and strengthened by what we see here. Lord, you have done a miraculous work in our life and we can't thank you enough. So we tell you this morning that we praise you and we adore you and we love you. We thank you for this time that we have together as the body of Christ to worship and praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start a new series this morning that I'm calling Out of the Comfort Zone. When I told my wife, Julie, that that's what I was thinking, she looked at me and said, they've already been living out of the comfort zone the last two years. I said, you have a point. You guys have endured a lot of change over the last few years, um, from being part of a new church family to meeting in a hotel and a women's club and a ministry center and a middle school and serving more than you probably served before because we need it so badly. And I want to tell you again, as always, I'm so grateful for your faithfulness and your patience and your uh, support of the church, but I'm also encouraged Uh, by what I hear as I talk to you, that you're so eager to keep moving forward. And that's important because now is not the time to relax. We see all that's going on in the world, and we see the need of our world for, for answers and for Christ and for purpose for their lives, and we see how the Lord's leading us. And I just thought this week it's, it's not time to relax, it's time to double down. It's time to increase our commitment as the days get shorter and shorter and the return of Christ could be any moment. Now, that being said, there there are always some things in our lives that need refining, some things that need to become more like Christ. And over the next five or six weeks, we're going to study a few of those because it's so easy to fall into a pattern as a believer. It's it's easy to to kind of settle in. And, and those habits that we developed and those those kind of personal traditions, let's call them, are really influenced by three things. Our personality, uh, whether we're an extrovert, introvert, whether we're social or kind of quiet, um, how we grew up, what our family was like. All, All of our personality is shaped by that. So our personality influences it. Our church background influences it, whether you grew up Catholic or Lutheran, whether you grew up not in church, uh, whether you're a part of a church that sang from the hymn book or a a church that was um, 
uh, more free and, and kind of open, whether they sang praise songs or whatever the case may be. Your church background influences how you approach serving the Lord and how you approach, approach worship. And then our culture, how we feel about being Christians in this society and the, the pressure and the influences and the temptations and all those things. Those, those can draw us into patterns where we kind of stay safe. And each of those impacts how comfortable we are in doing something that's not what we're used to doing or something that we've always done. You hear a lot in church, well, that's not how we've done it or that's how we've always done it. It's the, the death sentence for a church. Well, that's how we've always done it, which means we are resistance to any change. So we have to, we have to realize that those patterns influence how we react and how comfortable we are when the Spirit moves or leads us in a new way or calls us to a new calling. Because we tend to gravitate toward the path of least resistance. And in terms of our spiritual comfort zone, that usually means anything that doesn't require us to act in a way that's not easy. Or anything that causes people to look at us. We don't want that. We don't, we don't want people to, to watch us. Or anything that forces to take a public stand that that's not necessarily popular, which is going to be increasingly more difficult. And because God's grace is so wonderful, and because His grace is so easy in a sense, that, that we trust in Him, that we renounce sin, that we put our confidence in Christ to save us, because that's so easy in the grand scheme of things, it's very, uh, it's very much of a subtle temptation to kind of relax and to... And to to kind of get set in our ways because we're redeemed and because our salvation is secure and we can't lose it. So, so we can just kind, of, just kind of relax a little bit. Now, that's why I chose this picture for our series graphic. That looks nice, doesn't it? Don't you want to be right there right now? Better than outside. I'm sorry. I don't care if it is warmer today. That's so warm and tropical and relaxing and, 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 and I can just feel that right now. Can you feel that? Tell me you can feel that, right? The warm breeze and the sand and somebody bringing you a Diet Coke. I don't know. It just, it just feels nice. I want, you to, I want you to feel that. That's a place where we'd want to just be for a couple hours. Just kind of lay around and do nothing. And as believers, this is the temptation. This is the rationale that appeals to us the most as the enemy comes and tempts us. To do nothing in response to our salvation, and to do nothing in response to our calling from the Lord. Now, we don't have the luxury of resting. We, we don't have time to do that, because the Bible says, redeem the time, use it well, spend it wisely, because the days are evil. There's no more time until the Lord comes for passivity, and there's no more time until the Lord comes for us to be worldly. And that applies to the maturation of our faith as much as it does to, to fulfilling what Christ called us to in terms of our commissions as, as his disciples. And that maturation should be very intentional, and I would even use the word aggressive, in terms of how we approach it. But that flies in the face of a trend that I've noticed over the last 10 years in Christianity. And that is the, ten, the trend to, to kind of passively refer to, to our walk as a spiritual journey. That we're kind of just going through a, a process of 
growth and maturation. I'll explain this in a minute. The thinking behind this is described in a quote I found where the writer said, once we become Christ followers, we're not expected to achieve instant spiritual maturity. Rather, the Christian life is a process involving both our attention and God's work in us. Don't miss the fact that they were ordered that way in the quote. It has more to do with opportunity and intentionality than with age. Now, that sounds all well and good. And I had to read it a couple times till I started to look at it really closely and see a couple problems with it. The first problem is that that phrase, followers of Christ, has kind of become a, a, a poor man's substitute for the concept of discipleship. We'll talk next week about what it means to follow Christ because it doesn't look like what we see. That, that phrase, and I'm going to step on some toes and you're just going to have to allow it. That phrase, fully devoted followers of Christ, was used first by a megachurch in the late 80s. And many churches have adopted it into their mission statement. It's a, it's a good concept and a lot of churches have defined it well. But in some ways, it's kind of uh, become a buzzword to, to argue for kind of a shallow form of Christianity that's more social than theological that's more kind of practical than, than deeply spiritual. When we look next week at what it means to follow Christ, we're going to see that the way Christ defined it looks nothing like what we see now. It was not a process. It was not something easy. It was something deep and challenging and hard. And then the next thing is, while it's true that we don't achieve, to use the writer's phrase, instant spiritual maturity, that's not an excuse to not be actively striving to mature quickly in our faith. Because Jesus says in John 15 that the Father is glorified when we bear much fruit and therefore prove that we're his disciples. In other words, Jesus didn't say, you know what, you're a little sapling and I want you to just take your time. Just take 10, 15, 20 years, kind of do it at your own pace, kind of get there and eventually, as you get older in the Lord, you're going to bear fruit, and it's going to be great, and we'll just, I'll just be patient. The Lord's patient, but he's not patient about that. He says, I'm glorified. People will notice me when you bear much fruit. And in doing that, you're going to prove that you're really one of mine. The disciples who were saved in Acts 2 didn't say, all right, well, now let's develop a program so you can kind of slowly progress in your faith and just take your time. They said, come on, it's time to go. We got work to do. You need to mature in your faith. That's what excites me so much about so many of you getting involved in this precept study because I'm telling you right now up front, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be work, and it's good work, isn't it? To study the Word of God is good work. There's bad work, like our jobs this week. That's bad work. We get good work. We get to study God's word in depth and learn what his plan is. That's part of the maturation process. So, so I look at this quote, and the author uses 2 Corinthians 7.1 to say that we should give attention to our walk. But listen to what the verse says. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and sight, bringing holiness to completion, in the fear of God. That is not a long-term process. It doesn't just mean, well, kind of pay attention to it. It is a diligent, faithful commitment to purposely put off sin 
and to live by the Spirit in alignment with Jesus' holy example. That's what it is. It's not, it's not just, just try. It's an intentional action. And then third, and then we're going to read our text. The Christian life is established by God's work in us and then by our obedience in that order. What, what bothered me when I read that quote is it says, let me read it again and find it in my notes here. It says, the Christian life is a process involving both our attention and God's work in us. But that's the wrong order. What comes first is God's work in us. What comes first is the miraculous work that God has done in changing our lives. And it is nothing short of miraculous. To be headed to hell, to be full of sin, to be compromised in terms of our morality, to to be somebody that is sentenced to death, and then to be freed forever at, at, at no real cost to us because Jesus paid it all, to, to, to be delivered from death into life, let's affirm this, is miraculous. It's miraculous. And it's easy for us, especially if you've been saved a long time like I have, kind of take it for granted. Oh, I've been saved a long I don't remember what it's like not to be saved. Some of you do. Some of you have come from darkness into life in very dramatic ways, and every day, oh, you're praising the Lord. It's like, Lord, what have you done? But, but I'm telling you, it's hardest for us, for those of us as believers, more than 20 or 30 years. Because it's like, I've always been a believer. I know nothing else. What God has done is miraculous. And we're going to see in a minute, verses 9 11, how that motivates us. Because our life now is so much more than opportunity and t- intentionality. That makes Christianity sound optional. Like, when you see an opening, when you see a chance to kind of live out your faith, and when you, when you feel like doing it, just, okay, go ahead. Just, just, just look for some times where you can kind of stand for the Lord. Do, do, does anybody think that's why Christ died for us? So we could say, Lord, I'll serve, I'll serve you when I see the opportunity. I'll serve you when I get some time. I'm so busy right now, but, but I, I tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll study your word when I get a moment. Christ didn't die for us to do that. He died and rose again to make us holy. He died and rose again so his life would be fulfilled in us and we'd be restored to him. And with that in mind, everything about how we should live should be a grateful and loving response to what the Lord has done. It is not one of the options in our life. It is the only option. And that's what Paul's telling the Corinthian church here in 2 Corinthians 5. Now, we know, I don't need to give you background on Corinth. We've studied that they were selfish and disunified. and They were arguing about who baptized who and how spiritual gifts were used and all that kind of stuff. And what disturbed and grieved Paul so much about this is they were completely missing the point of what it means to love the Lord. They were missing what it means to be a disciple because they're going, well, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. Well, I have this spiritual gift. Well, I have this spiritual gift. Well, yeah, well, I, I like this and I do this and look at me. And, I mean, that's, that's 1 Corinthians. That's 2 Corinthians. To the point where Paul says in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, all right, knock it off. I don't care what your gifts are if you don't love each other. 
I don't care who baptized you or how you were raised or what scripture you know or, or what you think about yourself. If you are all about yourself, I only care about what you think if you prove your love for Christ by loving other people. So here he's drawing a very sharp distinction between this life, which is about us, and the heavenly life, which is about serving the Lord. And in doing so, he teaches a very basic but very profound spiritual principle that explains it all. Okay, long introduction. I'll try to be brief. Look at verse 16 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Let's read a couple verses here. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. Think about that sentence. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, if you look back at verses 9 to 11, which we didn't read, Paul establishes three motivations for us to live with an eternal perspective. Paul says there are three things that, that drive us to not think earthly, to not think self, to not think who we used to be, to not live by who we used to be. There are three motivations that push us forward when the eternal perspective. Look at verse 9. There, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. In verse 9, he gives us the first reason. It's our ambition. The ambition that we are to have as people that are saved by Jesus Christ is to be pleasing to the Lord now and for all eternity. Now ask yourself as you hear that sentence, is that my foremost ambition in life? We saw that video that people worship certain things, that they have certain ambitions, that they want to accomplish things or make a lot of money or have a big family or have a lot of physical pleasure or, or be to themselves. There, there are a plethora of things that people worship in life. But he says our ambition as believers is to be pleasing to the Lord. And the word ambition is very active. It means to strive earnestly with a goal in mind. And then he defines what the goal is. The goal is crystal clear, to please the Lord. Which I looked in the Greek means to please the Lord. There's no nuance to it. As a believer, as somebody that Christ redeemed, as somebody that trusts in Him, that has had their life transformed by the Holy Spirit and has the Holy Spirit indwelling and filling them, as a believer, our goal, our ambition, is to please the Lord. And we cannot please Him without giving our lives to Christ. But once we do, 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. A believer, whether saved one day or 50 years, can never say, God has not given me what I need 
to be godly. God, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Paul. I, I'm new, or, or I've, I've fallen back, or I've been saved a long time, but I'm telling you, I, I, I lack certain things. I, I can't be holy, to which I would say that you're not reading your Bible because Second Peter 1.3 says God has given us everything that we need to be godly. He's given us everything that we need to be holy. So the extent to which we live a holy life now becomes an issue of how earnestly we are striving to please him in all things. So we have an ambition to be pleasing the Lord. Then look at verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. This is the second motivation. We're reminded here that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's a very real place. It's not figurative. It's not a nice little concept in cartoons with St. Peter at the gate with his halo and his little book. This is the judgment seat of almighty, holy God. And every single one of us one day will stand there before him. Now, very important distinction here. This passage is written to believers. So when we see, we'll have to answer and be recompensed for the deeds that we have done in our body. That is not a statement that will be judged for the works that we did that saved us because we're not saved by works. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Faith is the only qualifier. So he's not saying you're going to have to answer and God's going to have a record and he's going to say, were you good enough to get into heaven? That's not what this passage is about because this is to believers. So what he is saying here is, this is the life that you lived after salvation. Christ has redeemed you. Christ has paid the penalty. So now, how have you lived? Francis Schaeffer wrote a book back in the 60s. How then shall we live? In other words, because you've been given so great a salvation, now, how are you living in response to that? Are you living for your comfort? Is it about you? Are you being thoughtless and insensitive to the fact that Christ paid the price and died and rose again for you to accomplish that in us? Or are you living sacrificially for him? Is life about being like Christ and wanting only to love and please him? Those are the two choices. Lukewarmness is not an option. There's no, there's no middle ground. So our ambition to be pleasing to Christ. What motivates us? We're going to stand before the Lord someday and we're going to have to answer how we've lived as believers. And then in verse 11, look what he says. Therefore, because of this, continuation of the thought, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we're made manifest to God, and I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences. This is the calling. Our ambition is to please the Lord. We do it, remembering that we're going to stand before the Lord. Now here is the calling. We live this way out of fear for the Lord. What is fear of the Lord? It means you're in awe of Him. It means you respect Him. It means you're humble before Him. It means you love him because of who he is and what he has done in your life. And it's that fear that not only causes us to choose holiness, but it causes us, look at the verse, to persuade others to trust him and love him too. And to be sure that we talk about Christ, verse 12 makes it abundantly clear 
that this isn't about talking about ourselves or about drawing attention to ourselves. It's all to be about Jesus. Look at verse 12, great verse. We are not again, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, we're not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. I believe verse 12 details the greatest area of deception in the American church and the greatest danger to Christians, as Paul says, to take pride in our appearance and not in the heart. What's that mean? That means that the temptation for us is to play a part. The temptation for us is to act a certain way and to convince people that it is enough to be comfortable and to not be self-sacrificial and to convince people that to be a real disciple of Jesus Christ means to be kind of different from the world, but not really. It means to kind of trust the Lord, but to still maintain a little bit of control. It, it, it means to be a certain way, but that's not who you really are. That's not really your conviction. Now, if that's our goal, if our goal is to fit in and be approved, rather than to follow the biblical call to be set apart and to persuade others, then it is no wonder that the impact of the church has decreased rather than increased. It's no wonder that we're not making headway. And in fact, I get more disturbed every day by how quickly I see the tide turning and us getting hit by the waves. It's, it's, it, we've, we've lost so much ground. And we keep talking about it, kind of saying, well, this and this. Listen, listen, the tide is turning quickly. If there's anything that will convince us the crisis is coming soon, it's that. More and more things getting pushed through. More and more things de-emphasizing the importance of faith in Christ. So we've got to remember, this is our calling. In the fear of the Lord, persuade others. What a calling for the American church. In the fear of the Lord, persuade others. And Paul says, here's the message you need to give them. Look at verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, That one died for all, therefore all died. Here's the first part of the gospel. You want a simple gospel presentation to give to people? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. That's part one. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, everybody out there is a sinner. We've all sinned before God, God is holy, and we all fall short. We're all dead because of Adam's sin because we would have done exactly the same thing. That's part one. Part two is in verse 16. And Christ died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. That's the second part of the gospel. We're all dead in sin, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The many as confess him, he is faithful and just to forgive their sins and to cleanse them for all unrighteousness. It's so simple. What we just said, we all know, and it's not hard to explain. We're all dead, and Christ can free us. Christ can make us alive. 
And because he did this, and because we've trusted him for our salvation, and we've been delivered and transformed. Now, look back at that verse again one more time, because this is the key spiritual principle. Because he's done this, we now don't live for ourselves. The Holy Spirit adds a little emphasis here. We live for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. In other words, just in case, Corinthians, just in case, church, just in case, Paul Rhodes, you're thinking about getting the bright idea of living for yourself, just remember that the one who died and rose again on your behalf and the one who delivered you and saved you and transformed you and filled you, that one, Jesus Christ, he expects you now to live for him. He expects you not to live for yourself because of what you experienced. And that fact of no longer living for ourselves is the starting point for understanding what we're going to do over the next five or six weeks when we talk about getting out of our comfort zone. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the verse that convinces us why it's necessary. This is a verse that every believer should memorize. Because when temptation comes creeping around and the enemy tries to convince you that, that what's happened in your life isn't really real, we can just look back in our Bible and we can quote it and we can say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away and behold, new things have come. Now, before we understand that verse a little bit better, it's important to define what it means to be in Christ. It's a great phrase. If you underline your Bible, underline that. Because that's a phrase that Paul loved to use. And he used it to distinguish those who really love the Lord. If there's any phrase that Paul used to define what it means to be a Christian, it's the phrase in Christ. What's it mean? It means complete unity with the Lord. It means your life is no longer independent, doing my own thing, Come to church, do my little religious obligation, serve a little bit, pray a little bit, study a little bit. Back over here, now I've got my life again. Kind of independent. Lord, I'll access you when I need you. When I'm in crisis, I'll call out to you. I'll use the church to, to encourage me and support me. But, but, but I've got a life. That's not how Paul defines it. If you are in Christ... You are so fully grafted into the vine, John 14. You're so much a part of him and he is so much a part of you that people can't look at you without seeing him. It means there is no separation. Not just that we believe in him and that we're saved. That's great. That's not where we're headed. It means to be completely merged with his life, where his spirit works in and through you and out of you. Now, when we give our lives to Christ, look back at the verse for a second, there's no question that we're a new creation. But when we're in Christ, it will be undeniably obvious to everyone that we don't live for ourselves and we don't live for our desires. Our only goal is to be exactly like Christ. Now that's a little bit uncomfortable. But that's our purpose. There's nothing left less than being like Christ. Now with that background, 
Let's read the verse again, and let me give you the best literal meanings for the key words. Therefore, if anyone is completely surrendered to Christ, he is a fresh, newly established building. The old things are dead and neglected. Behold, new things have been put into existence. This is the doctrine of regeneration. Spiritual rebirth. Spiritual recreation. The phrase back in the 70s was, I'm born again. That's a, that's a great phrase. That's regeneration. That's what God has done for us. And it has two components. The first one is being separated from the world. Verse 16 says that we don't recognize believers based on what their life was before Christ. And we don't recognize them by their association with the world. That's because we've been recreated by God. We no longer belong to sin. We're no longer controlled by sin. We no longer desire sin. We no longer live under the curse of sin, which means that the world has no hold over us and we're supposed to look at the, word, uh, the world with a holy rejection. We're a new creation by the work of the Lord and this is how people will recognize us. People will recognize us as a person who belongs to Christ and fully models his life. Hear that. When people look at Paul Rhodes, when people look at you, the only thing they need to see is that person belongs to Jesus Christ and that person is modeling his life. Now, I don't know about you, but I fail at that many, many times. There are many times when people look at me and go, that person does not fully model Christ's life. But that's what I'm called to. That's what you're called to. That's what regeneration does. The second thing regeneration does is produces a complete change of our heart. The way the verb is written here means we're not just a new creature, but we're also to be a new creature. You get it? Not only has God established us as new, but he says, now be new. In other words, because Jesus makes me a new person, I'm supposed to live as that new person. It's very basic, but it's very deep. So because the Lord's changed our hearts, we're now to completely and unwaveringly live by that change to reject whatever is old, whatever is part of our past life, and to live completely for him. And the Lord gives us the ability to do that because he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He gives us the ability to do that and to put to death the old things, our old desires, our old thoughts, our old actions, our old sins. The Bible says they've literally passed away. They've died. They have no life. There's no breath. They don't function anymore. They're not on life support in the hospital so we can go visit them once in a while and remember all the fun that we used to have with our old life. It is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So there's to be no comfort in trying to go back and resuscitate it because it's not our life anymore. Now let me ask you this morning. Is that how you view your old self? Do you look at the life you lived before Christ and say, I still enjoy that once in a while. Brings me some pleasure. 
It's a little break from all the spiritual stuff. And I don't know, Paul, I just, you're being too hard on me this morning. I, I, I like it. It's dead. Or do we look at our lives and say, never again. I used to be in bondage and Christ has freed me. And he killed its power and control. Romans 6 says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin. Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's all that mean? It means that we are assured that Jesus took away the authority and control of our old life and replaced it with his authority and control. He took away the sin. He broke the chains. He brought us out of bondage. He released us from death. And he says, now you're under my authority. The delusion of the enemy is, now that you're free, you're under nobody's authority, which really means we're under his authority. You and I, as uncomfortable as it is sometimes, live under the authority of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he made us a new creation. And that means there is no way we can justify going back to our old life and living like we used to. There's no way we can say, well, Lord, just, just I need a break. Or, Lord, I, I just need this one sin. Or, Lord, I just need this one discrepancy in my holiness. No, he says, you are a new creation. You're a completely different identity. Everything has changed. You're not like you used to be. Nothing about your soul looks like it used to. Before you were stained with sin, you were convicted by the righteousness of the law, and you had no righteousness of your own. But now you're as white as snow. And you're filled with the righteousness of God. And you are fully confident that you're saved. Before you were selfish. It was all about you. You were completely inclined to please yourself and do things your own way. But now we're humbled by God's grace. And we're completely inclined to please the Lord. And we're called to live in holiness and to reject self and die to self daily. Before we were obsessed with materialism and we craved pleasure and control, and we were angry when we didn't get our way, but now we're obsessed with heaven. Oh, church, we need to be obsessed with heaven. Laying up treasures there rather than treasures here, because you know what? The government's going to get all of them. Treasures here are going to mean nothing in 10 years. Treasures in heaven are eternal. Look at verse 21, we'll pray. He says, because the Lord has done this and because you're now reconciled to him, in other words, there's no more conflict in the relationship. It's been fully restored. He's done this. Interesting phrase. So we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. I want you to hear that verb. Because the way it's written in the text is correct. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That is talking about the future when we get to heaven and we'll be made fully righteous. But it's also talking about here. Because it means that while regeneration and reconciliation are a sure thing, while it's an unbreakable promise of God and a guarantee to us that the life we now live 
is still imperfect until we get to heaven. And how we live now, listen, is determined by us. He saved us. He's given us everything we need to be godly. But while we're still on earth, we're still imperfect. We'll only be perfect when we get to heaven. So go back to verse 9. What's our ambition? Is our ambition to please the Lord in all things? Because the only way to do that, according to this text, is to completely put off our old sin and no longer live for ourselves, to live as the new creation that we are. What does that mean for your life this morning? And let me be very blunt in asking, what needs to be put to death once and for all? What needs to stay dead in your life so you can become the righteousness of God through Christ? Maybe you've never received, never never trusted Christ as your Savior. You've held on to sin and you've convinced yourself that that your good works are enough and that you're okay and that God will just accept you because he's loving and he accepts everybody. And I want to tell you this morning, once you sin, you're condemned. If you will confess your sin and trust Christ, he will deliver you from that. But that old life, that life you're living now needs to be put to death. And for those of us that have trusted Christ, this is about conforming to him. It's about imitating him and living for him. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing or renovation of your mind. First Peter says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Is that easy? Nope. Are we going to be comfortable? Not at all. Does it require sacrifice and intentionally resisting sin? No question. But there's really no sense in talking about the other five or six things we're going to study if we don't do this. Because if we're not living as a new creature in Christ, all the other stuff won't line up. We'll just be kind of making it up as we go, saying, well, I'm going to try to to follow Jesus in a better way. I'm going I'm to try harder. No, not if you're not living as a new creation. That's just effort. One day we're going to stand before him and he's going to say, I saved you. Christ died for you. He shed his blood for you. He went to the cross with all your sin. And then he rose again. How'd you live because of that? What, what did you do with the rest of your life? Did you live as the new creature that I made you? Or did you live for yourself? Let's bow our heads just for a moment and close our eyes. And let me just talk to you for a minute. I know I've talked a lot. You've listened so well. But I, I feel led that the Lord wants us to respond to this. If the Lord has been speaking to you this morning and you and you heard what needs to be put to death in your life when that, when that phrase hit you and you 
said to yourself, oh, there are some things, Paul. There, there's definitely some stuff I'm still holding on to. That's, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. That's the Holy Spirit saying, the way you're living is not a new creature. It's a, it's a blend, and that doesn't work. So without making a show of this and without prolonging it, I would encourage you that if this has been the Lord's message for you and that there are things you need to put off and, and ask the Lord to put to death in your life once and for all, I'm going to ask you to stand up and come up to the front and just kneel at the altar. It's going to have music playing for a couple minutes. We're not going to ask you to say anything. We're not going to ask you to confess anything out loud. Just a time between you and the Lord. But as a statement of commitment, as a statement of stepping out and saying, Lord, this needs to happen now. I'm a new creature. So if that's you this morning, I want you to just get up and just come and kneel. We're not going to be long, a minute or two. Nobody's looking around. This is not so you can impress anybody or some people look at you and judge you. It's nothing about that. This is just you and the Lord. Lord, cleanse me now. I'm holding on to something that is not pleasing to you. And Lord, my ambition is supposed to be to please you. Lord, you know what it is. This morning, I'm going to confess it to you. I'm going to bring it to your throne of grace and ask you to break that hold that it has on me. And Lord, I know there is responsibility in my own life. I need to separate myself from it. I need to make a decision who I'm going to serve. Choose this day who you will serve. Father, the hold of sin can be so strong. All of us have it in our lives. Imperfect until we stand before your throne and you declare us righteous for all eternity. You've already given us that promise. But Lord, we still struggle with it here. Lord, you have made us into a new creation completely different entity that looks nothing like before. And yet, Lord, how often do we hold on to our sin by choice? So, Father, I ask you this morning in my own life and the life of these that are forward and the lives of each is in the congregation that you would break that bondage that we're intentionally holding on to, those spiritual handcuffs that we keep putting back on our wrists and you would free us you've given us everything we we need pertaining to life and godliness and Lord we praise you for that this morning we thank you that you have done that we don't deserve that that's only by your grace
We thank you that you've freed us. And you have equipped us to live as holy people. Lord, now I pray every day you convict us. Every day as we wake up, you would say, I have fresh mercy, but I want you to be holy. Be holy as I am holy. I've declared you holy and made you holy. Now be holy. And Lord, I pray in our lives and in our church, there would be a fresh awakening of our spirit and a fresh commitment of our lives that would not waver to be holy like you. Oh Lord, what could happen if we lived holy lives? How our witness would be stronger if we lived holy lives. How our worship would change if we lived holy lives. How our prayer would be fervent if we lived holy lives. Lord, we desire this morning to be holy as you are holy. Help us, Lord. Convict us every day. And when we're about to yield to sin, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts so loudly and say, stop. There's a way of escape. That's not how a holy person lives. Lord, we pray that you would do this work in our lives. And we pray that you would do a work that is fresh and transformative in and through us. We thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus, who redeemed us. Lord, we praise you this morning. We praise you for Jesus Christ. We praise you for redemption. Now, Lord, we want to live that way. Do that work, we pray. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.